Next, I have listed here that uh, we probably should spend a moment um, on the resurrection appearances in your Concordia Study Bible on page 1597. If you would open your Bibles to 1597 now, that would be good. You will notice that there are a lot of different appearances after the resurrection. And each of the four evangelists has at least two or more. But Acts also has reference to his ascension in the opening chapter. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 has a catalog of post-resurrection appearances, some of which are found nowhere else. Like, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, near the bottom of the page, the appearance to more than 500 at one time. That's a lot of people. And to James, the brother of the Lord, James. And that's very touching because James, according to John chapter 7, is one of the brothers who didn't believe in Jesus. But I think it's Eusebius who in his church history gives us this little anecdote about James that he vowed when Jesus was crucified that he would not eat or drink until he saw the risen Lord. And then Jesus appeared to him as an act of mercy. And this is the same James who later becomes leader of the congregation in Jerusalem. Um, when Paul comes back from his missionary journeys, according to Acts 21, he first goes to James, who is the leader of the group there in Jerusalem, the old mother church, and he reports to him, and James gives him good advice. And it's the same James that Eusebius talks about. Oh, my goodness, I just realized there's something terrible. Somebody's reporting on James later. You want to say all those things to the class, don't you? Well, you can say them again. Anyway, <laughs> it's James who is described as having knobby knees, because he was so pious, he was always down on his knees praying. Okay, it's the same James who was later thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and thus met his death. Yeah, because, you know, he refused to uh, put down Jesus as the Christ. Anyway, Eusebius gives us some of those details. So when he, uh, the Lord appears to James, his brother, uh, that, that's a touching kind of thing that First Corinthians 15, verse 7 tells us about. All right, you get the picture. There's a lot of appearances um, to um, various people at various places, including some in Galilee um, after the resurrection. Uh, Matthew and uh, John tell us about that. And the longer ending of Mark, which may or may not be part of the original Bible, but that also has that reference. Okay, so comments, questions about that? There's certainly plenty. Oh, you know, there's one that's not even listed here, and you might write it in the bottom of the book there. Did he not appear to Paul, Saul, on the way to Damascus? And Saul refers to that as a turning point in his life. He lastly appeared to me also as to one born out of, out of due time. Okay, so you might add that. 
that's uh, perhaps a little different kind of appearance, but it was after he had ascended into heaven that that appearance happened. Okay. Are we ready for the words from the cross? Here they are. What you can see on the screen here, I think, is that uh, no single evangelist has all the seven words of Jesus that we have recorded in the Gospels, but they're scattered throughout the four evangelists. And I put them in this order because people, as they read the text, usually put them in this order, and this is a very logical order to put them in, too. Luke has three words, the first two and the last one. John has three words, woman, behold your son, and to the beloved disciple, behold your mother. John also has I thirst and it is finished. And it is Matthew and Mark who have this word of being forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now those are interesting words, and you've probably heard sermons during the Lenten series on those words, touching words, thoughtful words. If he spoke more words, we don't have them, but those are words in self that tell us a lot about Jesus and what happened in those painful hours. His first words, the first three that are listed there, have to do with other people. See, he always put others first. Father, forgive them. And who is he praying for as he prays his prayer? Is he not praying for all of those who are responsible for Jesus' crucifixion? Yes, indeed, Pontius Pilate, the chief priest, and some of the people in the mob who shouted crucify. But I think it's bigger than that. Ultimately, who is responsible for the crucifixion besides Pilate and Caiaphas and the chief priest? Anybody else? All sinners. All sinners. That includes me. That includes all of us. Um, and he prays for us. Father, forgive. And that's just such a beautiful gospel statement that his crucifixion was necessitated by the sins of all humanity and we're included in that and we're forgiven as we cling to that precious word of forgiveness. Secondly, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, some of whom came with one hour left in the day to work. This is in Matthew's gospel. Here, this thief on the cross came at the last moment. Yeah, you will probably have some funerals someday, people, where you have somebody who is a village bad boy. <laughs> but you know, in his last days, he called for you, and you were able to pray with him, and you were able to get him to confess and to receive the Lord. Thank God for those moments. They don't happen very often but they can happen, and that's the point here. Whether early or late, they can happen. But like those who worked from the earliest hour of the day, all 12 hours and through the heat and burden of the day, don't the faithful feel chipped? No, why should they? They have this assurance their whole life long that the Lord is with them and can help them through the hills and valleys of their life. They have that blessed assurance if they only seize it. 
So thank God for the one who finally gets it as well. All right, today you will be with me in paradise. And then the third word, he thinks of his mother there at the foot of the cross, and he gives her to the beloved disciple. Now tradition tells us that uh, John is the one, the son of Zebedee, who took care of Mary. And there is, in fact, a church, well, it's in ruins now, in Ephesus that is dedicated to the honor of the Blessed Virgin Mother. I had the privilege of preaching there one time on Monday, Thursday, and doing, you know, the Lord's Supper, and I was quite a thrill. And then when I heard that uh, the Pope had previously visited there to, to dedicate the shrine, I, I was kind of excited about that, too. <laughs> anyway, um, Mary is honored in Ephesus, and this is where John lived the latter part of his life. And where, whether she died there or not, who knows? There's one tradition that says she did, and there's another tradition that says she died in Jerusalem. There's a tomb there for her, too. So, all right, let that be. Now, moving on. My God, my God, and I thirst. These are the two words that show his intensity of suffering. My God, why have you forsaken me? All alone, no one to help him. Book of Revelation, we have this one scene that describes him treading the wine press alone. Book of Isaiah had this picture about, you know, the uh, one who would tread the wine press alone, and that's Jesus. He alone on the cross suffered for the sins of humanity. And when he said, according to John's gospel, I thirst, what do you think he meant? Well, everybody at the foot of the cross, of course, would suggest, give me a drink, right? <laughs> But there are those who would suggest, and I feel that this is a great thought, that he may have been thinking of Psalm 42. You know what Psalm 42 says, right? Well, let's look at it quickly, briefly. I think we are able to do that, and this may be one of those devotional thoughts you may want to share with one of your people someday. Psalm 42 says, it's beautiful. Uh, Tim? Timothy? Timmy? I would, yeah, if you don't mind, then I'll come back to you. As a heart, that's, that's a deer or a stag, longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for thee, O God, you know, longing for the presence of God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When I come and behold the face of, when shall I come behold the face of God? My tears have been my food all day long. While men say continually, where is your God? You get the scene here of, you know, Jesus being mocked. Um, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, the multitude-keeping festival. Isn't that kind of a you know, picture of the, of the Palm Sunday crowd? Um, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. Okay. Now, of course, we can't say that he was thinking of Psalm 42, but doesn't Psalm 42 really reflect the kind of spiritual thoughts he might have had as he thirsts for the presence of God when he had just said, My God, why have you forsaken me? And then, of course, we go on to the last two words. Um, a victory cry. One word, the telestai in Greek. It's finished. It's over. The battle won. Um, and then Luke's word, into your hands I commend my spirit. 
Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Alrighty. So those are the seven words from the cross that we have. And uh, you don't necessarily have to remember all of them, but you, you should try because some people put these things on tests. And I can't say that I'm immune to that sort of thing. So um, some of them are easy to remember. Like into your hands I commend my spirit, who is a gospel writer who focuses heavily on the Holy Spirit. Of course, you know it is Luke, right? And it's easy to remember that Matthew and Mark have this one word, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. And, um, well, and Luke, you know, Father, forgive them. Luke is big on forgiveness. And today you'll be with me in paradise. That's another forgiveness word. So Luke would have those words. So they're not impossible to think, uh, to remember if you think uh, about the theology and the direction of the particular biblical writers. That's how you can answer a lot of those test questions by figuring out, you know, how the evangelist uh, would have, you know, included this or that as opposed to somebody else. Okay, I'm just giving you some inside stories here. Uh, let's go back then to page three of your study guide where we have listed some key chapters, key persons, and key places. And uh, may I simply make some very humble suggestions that um, in Matthew, I would certainly expect you to know the parables of the kingdom coming from chapter 13 because that's really a big-time discourse. All these seven parables, they're clustered together and intentionally by Matthew. And then in chapter 5 to 7, I would expect you to know the Sermon on the Mount because this is, again, a clustering of a lot of the sayings of Jesus that pulled together his teachings on the law. So he is kind of a new Moses here who deepens the understanding of the law. And then in chapter 13, he deepens our understanding of what God is like through those parables and what man can become, you know, likewise through these parables. Then in Mark, I would say that probably the only chapter that really is usually given a number in people's minds is number 13, you know, that, that discourse there on the last things, the little apocalypse. And in Luke, I would certainly expect that you know 15, which has got the three lost things because everybody knows about the prodigal son, and that's in that chapter. And I would dare say that it might be of some importance, even though I don't have it here, is that you might remember that Luke has two sendings in chapter 9 and 10, uh, one of them the sending of the 12 and the other one the sending of the 70, but he only has a sending of the 70 in chapter 10. So I, I guess we can kind of pare down this list a little bit and suggest that some are maybe more important than some others. For John's gospel, I would say, hey, you all want to know about the wedding of Cana, don't you? Right there at the beginning of the gospel in chapter 2. And you all want to know about Lazarus in chapter 11, don't you? Which is kind of at the middle of the book as we verge into the second half of the book. So I guess those things would stand out. Now, if you want to add to the list, please do, but for your own benefit. But those are the ones that I would push on you. I would add in John's Gospel also 13 to 17 
as the upper room discourse. We, we looked at that. You notice we had about five chapters all together that deal with the uh, time that he spent on the night in which he was betrayed in that upper room with his disciples. So um, that's kind of special there. 